0: When our kids were young, uh, one of the things that uh, they had as a benefit, at least as parents we saw it as a benefit, was that they got to take music lessons. Uh, my mother-in-law, Beth's mom, was a strings teacher, and so they learned, uh, a couple of them learned violin, and Meredith learned cello. And uh, there were times when they would come, in to, uh, come back from a, a lesson with a new assignment for a different piece of music. And I'll just tell you, there were times when my daughter would say to me, she'd just in tears say, this is just too hard. There's no way I'll ever be able to play this music. And I said to her, well, if it's not hard, it's not really all that beautiful. I mean, isn't it interesting that the stuff that's more beautiful is actually a lot more difficult to play, but when you figure it out, It's beautiful. I I learned to play the piano as a kid, and uh, the song that just keeps coming back to me from as a kid being able to play music—it was this one, right? I mean, isn't that beautiful? It's (laughs) thank you. It's really not all that hard, actually. And you might say, Mark, it's not all that beautiful either. And, and that's the way it is with so much of life, isn't it? That the things that are difficult are actually the things that, if they can be uh, managed and, and worked through and worked on, they can actually become very beautiful things. And God wants us in our life. We're talking about marriage, but we've also been talking about life uh, during the course of this series. And the beauty that God wants... Uh, to characterize our lives in the context of difficulty that comes along the way. We've talked about a couple of different aspects of why God invites us to consider and to embrace marriage. And one of them is, is that marriage becomes a really wonderful context for a life to be fruitful. And uh, we we looked at what that was like. And then last Sunday, we talked about marriage as being a wonderful opportunity for us to learn about faithfulness and actually worship God through the faithfulness of life and the challenges that come in the midst of married life to be continuously making the choice to be faithful and the worship that can come out of that. And this morning, I want us to talk about this other aspect of life, and we've described it as the fitfulness of marriage, which is really the challenges that come our life and the gift that God gives us of companionship because companionship is so critical for the challenges that we face in the midst of life. And that's what we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We've been using the word fitfulness. The word fitfulness essentially means, uh, it denotes a sense of shifting or of changing, and that is certainly what happens not only in marriage, all of these changes and and shifts that go on, but in life as well. And just before we get into the text, let me just remind you of how important it is for us to deal with these critical uh, relationships that we have in our life, perhaps with a spouse or best friend, a group of people, how critical those pieces are. I have just heard stories just the last few days of you know may even be your story of of the way god's using you in your life to speak into the life of the people around you the impact you have in your career choices it's just really extraordinary to me to hear over and over again of all of the ways that god is using our church family to make a difference in the world around us uh, and you do that um, But there is this piece of our life that we have to pay attention to in order for us to be fruitful in so many other ways in our life. To give attention to the relationships that are most critical to us. It is necessary for us to have those because they undergird life. And all of the other things that, by God's grace, you are doing and get to do and are invited into all come back to this core need for us to be in relationship and for that relationship to be cultivated in deep and significant ways. And that's what the preacher, it's called the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, is addressing this morning. So I want to make two observations, exhortations actually, that come from the text. And then in the third part of it, just talk about what the implications might be Uh, hopefully for all of us, uh, regardless of the station in life that God has us in. But the first is this, Uh, the preacher is saying this, that uh, life must be protected by companionship. It's a critical piece. Life is difficult, and in order for us to be protected, there must be companionship that comes with it. And the companionship that's referred to here is companionship that's not just you know, in the moment, but it's enduring over time. It's a companionship of faithfulness. It's really a companionship that is bound together over time. That's what the writer is talking about. Those kinds of relationships with another person bound together over a period of time. And the teacher says a couple of things in regards to this. First of all, This instruction that the teacher is giving is about companionship in general. Oftentimes, we use this for marriage, don't we? I mean, who hasn't been to a wedding where somebody pulls out Ecclesiastes 4, right? Two are better than one, cord of three strands, all of that. And we oftentimes look at this and say, oh, that's wisdom literature that talks about marriage. Actually, it's talking about companionship and how critical it is for all of us. You'll notice the contrast in verse 9 of chapter 4. It says two are better than one, but look at verse 8. There was a man all alone. And the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is saying don't be that person that's all alone. Uh, the isolation that comes with that. You know, we know about this. There are contemporary reference points to what that life is like. There's that Really great song. I am a rock. I am an island. Love that song, but the words and the invitation and the kind of you know encouragement to be that, it it just messes a person's life up. A rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. Yeah, yeah, but they live in absolute isolation. Think of another example of that. It was that Tom Hanks movie, Castaway, right? I mean, here's this guy, adventurous, on an island all by himself, and The story plays out, and and he's filled with desperation, changing circumstances, uncertainty, and crazy, distorted thinking. One must be protected by companionship. That's what the teacher is saying to us. You've got to have it. A lone strand, in fact, is vulnerable to breaking. That's the other piece of this. You get to the last verse. And it says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That's what this is about. This is about a strand that can be broken if it's all by itself. Don't let your life be broken. And how does that happen? By being knit together in relationship with other people over time. You know, there's this reference to three strands. And let's look at that for just a a minute. We wonder, what is that three strands uh, referring to? Something interesting about the Hebrew language—it's this beautiful language, and there are, there are—it's, um, it's poetic, and it's, and it's got all sorts of, of feeling to it. It's, a l- it's different than Greek. Greek is a little bit more, you know, exactly what's intended to be saying. It's more structured and more specific. Uh, Hebrew is more elegant, and, and and there's, and there's just such a, a, a an open feel to it, which it makes it more difficult when we get to a place like this and trying to figure out what exactly is intended here when it's talking about a cord of three strands. And there are a number of ways that people have looked at this. They say, well, the cord of three strands is, a, is, a, is a, a, a form of language that's used elsewhere, actually even in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, it talks about there are seven, no, there are even eight. And you go to Amos, in Amos chapter 1, it refers to there are three sins, even four sins. And there's a possibility that this is that there are two well, even three, which has this emphasis on it's what I said and then some. This is a big deal. It is, it, it is, it, it is, a, it is then some. Uh, and that might be what is referred to here in the sense that there's nothing sacrosanct about the pair, actually. The more one has connection with the better one's life is. There's, there's a possibility of that in this text. There's a possibility... People say, well, it's referring to two people married who have a third, have a child. And uh, we know what a child does. It just brings a relationship together and brings it deeper. It, it gives a dimension that wasn't there before, and so it, it binds it together and is even more strong than that. But then there's that other part of it that we use, and we oftentimes hear in reference uh, uh, to marriages. This is the third strand is God. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this, let's do an experiment with life. Let's try to live life without God. And then you see these insertion points where you're reminded that God is present. God God has a place in there. And they're subtle, but they're really significant. And it's very, very possible that this is another one of those subtle, yet significant reference points that life is not going to work without God. So you say, well, which one is it? And I think it's absolutely legitimate in this context to be able to say every one of them is a significant reference point. Certainly the reference point to God and the place he plays in a relationship that can be protected and can be enduring. God is the unspoken critical component to a life that's characterized by hope. But this is what the teacher is saying, life must be protected by companionship. Otherwise, it breaks. Don't do it alone. Then there's a reason that is given in the text. It's because life is characterized by challenge. And the preacher goes on and describes all of these challenges that we see that are true of life. In verse 9, life is hard work. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. It's tough. A good return for labor isn't a sure thing. And it's got to be something that, uh, that uh, one works at and that two work at. In the context of a marriage, husband and wife look at each other and say, this is a hard thing, this is work, and, and there's no guarantee of a good return, so let's give ourselves both to this thing. Let's give ourselves both to this endeavor because life is characterized by challenges like that. The second challenge that's listed is in verse 10. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity the one who falls and there is no one to help them up. This isn't just a stumble where you can just pick yourself back up again. This is a fall. This is a plunge. And uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's reference to those times in life where I'm not getting up if I don't have somebody else here alongside of me. I'm not getting up without help. And we know what life is like. It comes with falls and it comes with brokenness. We see here talking about a a path, perhaps, that's a broken path and causes someone to stumble. Broken systems. There are broken systems in the world around us that cause people great pain. And when we fall, there's brokenness that comes with us and something's broken inside of me. if I'm not helped and healed, I won't be able to move forward. Life comes with falls and with brokenness. And verse 11 talks about the harshness of life. If two lie down together, they will be kept warm. But how can one keep warm alone? This reference to the seasons of where it's bitter cold of life and uncertainties of the seasons and the way they go that can weaken us or can harm us. It was very common in the Middle East during that time for travelers, the only way to be able to manage a long journey in the midst of a season where it's bitter cold or uh, changing weather is, that's how they would uh, travel together, is to lie down and and stay warm because it was more than a person traveling on their own. And then uh, in verse 12, life is perilous. In fact, it's cruel. Though, two may, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Every one of us needs to be defended from those around us that intend to do us harm. It's just the way life is. It's the world we live in. Now you're reading this and you say, wow, that's quite a list, isn't it? You want me to walk out of here with just such a sense of dis- discouragement? Could you imagine at a wedding, the the, the official actually gets up and, <laughs> and says to the married couple, "I got four I got four or five things to say to you. It is hard. It is awful. You're going to fall down." And everybody walks out of this. Boy, Someone say, "I'm glad I didn't get married." You know, that's just. It, it, but that's what we see. It's a, it, it, it it it. It's just so pessimistic. And actually, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is. It's a part of a body, a group of pessimistic literature. That's the the type of literature it is. It's ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature, and it's actually called pessimism literature. And there are examples of this uh, in in ancient times. There was an Egyptian work, and it was titled this, The Man Who Was Tired of Life. (laughs) And it, there's this description of a, a man who disputed with his soul over whether life was worth living. Life is so uncertain, and life is so short. It, would say, it went on to say, okay, so I might be alive, but what benefit is there in being alive? You know, you want a good uh, read uh, for vacation? Here it is. <laughs> and there were others as well, too. There were some Babylonian uh, writings, one of them, was called Councils of a Pessimist. Who, who wants that one? In, in 13 uh, BC, there was another one that was titled Dialogue of Pessimism. And you get to the end of that piece of literature, and it says this, Suicide is the only reasonable option to pick. So th- this was a genre, a type of literature that, that they recognized. And what does God say? Let me write one. Let me write one that embraces all of the things that are certainly true about life and its difficulty, but let me write one uh, that has a different spin to it. This is the only biblical example we have of it, and some of us might say, boy, thank you, God, that you only gave us one of those. But we're not unfamiliar with this kind of a form. There are contemporary reference points for us in that regard, too. Let me just mention one of them to you uh, Have any of you ever read Winnie the Pooh? This isn't pessimism literature, but there's a pessimistic character in it, right? There he is, Eeyore. And who loves Eeyore? Well, here is his pessimistic perspective towards life. It's snowing still, said Eeyore gloomily. So so it is, and freezing. Is it? Yes, said Eeyore. However, brightening up a little, we haven't had an earthquake lately. You know, we can go through life that way. And there there's kind of that tendency to be able to move in that direction. But, um, but can you imagine Eeyore as a wedding official? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so let's go to this third uh, piece this morning, and it is this. It's possible to live beyond pessimism. Not to just live with rose-colored glasses, but actually to live in a world that uh, concedes many of the contentions that... Uh, some people have a, a, a call out and notice. I mean, we even know this. Henry Nowen writes in one of his books, life is not wrapped in cellophane and protected from the difficulties of life. It, it just isn't. That, we know that. But in the midst of that, even, even conceding those contentions, we recognize this. We need not confine our viewpoint to the world and its resources alone. We have a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own son. We have a creator who created world, the world even in its brokenness to be a place where we could flourish, where your life could be characterized by fruitfulness. That is true still. In the midst of the hardships of life, we can live beyond pessimism. How do we do that? By embracing what's true of God and what's true of the world that he gives us. You know, in some realms, progress can be measured by increasing independence. And we love that when we see it in our young people, don't we? Wow, you're gaining independence. And there's a joy in seeing that take place. But in this realm, spiritual stature is measured by growing interdependence by growing interdependence. There's something that is necessary about that. So what does it look like? Well, we can actually take these these specific examples of the difficulties of life and recognize that um, they can somehow be embraced and we're protected by the embrace of them. The first is this. God invites us to embrace the hard work of marriage, to embrace the hard work of life to embrace the hard work of the situation we find ourselves. Oh, it's hard work, but it can be embraced. It ought to be embraced. We have examples of that right here in our own church family. I had an opportunity, I think it was about a week and a half ago, to visit some precious people that are part of our church congregation. And uh, one of them was Ed and Lois Olson. I know Lois is here this morning. And Lois, you knew when I took your picture, I was taking your picture. Maybe you didn't know that it was going to be up here, but... Here are Ed and Lois, and they've been married for 68 years. Wow. And, and while you're clapping, one of the things that Lois said, and as I said, How long have you been married? And she said, 68 years. And then she quoted to me, she said this Not every day are the roses growing in the backyard. Irma Bombeck, I guess. Is that, isn't that? that so good? 68 years, and guess what? Not every day are the roses growing in the backyard. It's hard work. That same week, I had an opportunity to be able to sit down with John and Polly Erickson. and went over to their apartment, and they'd been married for 59 years. John and Polly were in the first service. And, and John said in the midst of it, you know what, Mark? It's not all luck it's hard work that's just the way it is got a chance to be able to visit after that with bonnie dickinson who was married for 66 years and is now single living in community with others and uh, she described their marriage and she said it wasn't all good and it wasn't all bad but none of those statements were statements of pessimism or despair. It's just real. It just is. To embrace the hard work of it. That's what God has given us. He's given us, in the company of a spouse or a a deep best friend or a group of friends, He's given us the opportunity to do hard work. And the result of hard work is beautiful things. There is a glory possible in a life through hard work. Embrace it, God says. Wherever it is, whatever that relationship is, embrace the hard work that will be part of it. And then there's another aspect of it, and that is to embrace grace. We're broken. We fall down. We're sinful people. We're not not where we want to be yet, and that's what we do. We find ourselves in a relationship with people that are not perfect. And the invitation here is not to spin down into pessimism, but to embrace grace. How does a person learn grace without giving it? Right? How do you learn to be a person of grace if you never have opportunity to give it? How does a person learn Christ-like compassion if it's never required? Jesus Christ, who on the night he was betrayed... Walked towards the cross to give his life for the very people that abandoned him. Christ like grace. How does it happen? It happens by learning to love and show grace to people who still have unredeemed traits. Our spouses yet unredeemed traits are actually a part of God's grace to us. I mean, I'm not going to say to Beth, lucky I'm so unredeemed because this is really helping you out. (laughs) But it is true. Our best friends, the companions, their yet unredeemed traits are actually a part of God's gift to you. God, show me, guide me, empower me to be a person of the kind of grace that you expressed to me and to the world, to embrace grace. This is true in other relationships besides married relationships, in our small groups. You know, what if God gave you a perfect small group? What are the odds? What are the chances that you'll be able to learn grace in a place like that? God puts those people in our lives and he actually puts us in other people's lives so that they and we can learn what Christ-like grace is all about. This isn't what stinks about life. We embrace it because God's giving it to us as a gift. And then there's a third aspect of it and that is to embrace the seasons of life seasons of marriage too some of you know Darren Plant he was our, our site pastor for Blue Valley and Darren Plant was doing a wedding just a couple weeks ago that Beth and I had the privilege of being able to go to and in his you know, great comments to the soon to be married couple he said this I have been married to three women of, and each of them was my wife Kathy <laughs> You know, you wonder how that went when they got home that night, right? (laughs) And now, Darren, you're married to number four. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it's true, isn't it? I mean, and Kathy could have said the same thing about Darren. We go through seasons of life, and guess what? We are not married to a static person. They go through seasons of life, and it's part of the adjustment that's necessary that makes a relationship deep and faithful companionship, even in relationships with best friends. It's this adjustment that's necessary along the way. Uh, Norman Wright, who writes a lot on marriage, talks about the seasons of married life. He talks about initial expectations, and that's the one that's just really fun, isn't it? But then there are those early years where all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but you begin to realize, whoa, this isn't the person I thought that person was. And then there are the midlife transitions that come along and all of the angst or difficulty that comes with that. And then, empty nest. You know, what happens when the primary caregiver, be it the husband or the wife, no longer has kids to care for and this transition occurs and they're looking at the world completely different? Your spouse is looking at them, looking at the world, and saying, What's my call? Don't think that that's not a transition. And I hear of people whose spouse is now retired, and they would say, you know, I wish they would just go back to work again. (laughs) I mean, and that happens. And so you have all of these seasons of life that bring with them challenges along the way. The last years, or when one spouse passes away and is gone All of these seasons, and there may be seasons of unfaithfulness or seasons that require healing, each one of those seasons will require something different from us in order to be a person characterized by companionship. Because I need it, and you need it, we need it in order to endure the challenges of life. It's true as individuals, early adulthood, then the years of insignificance early in one's career, when we need someone around us speaking uh, into our lives and saying that we're doing all right, when we look like, we feel like we're failures or insignificant or don't matter. Some of you may know, remember Bob Jackson, Bob and his wife were part of our congregation for a number of years, and he was CFO for American Century. And, uh, And then he retired, and they moved for half of the year down to Naples. And Beth and I were down visiting Bob and his wife, and he said, it's just so interesting, this transition that takes place. He says, you move from a world in which you swim around as a VIP, a very important person, and then you retire, and like everybody else, move to Naples and places like that, and you become a WIP, we're important people. And he said, it's pretty ugly. When a person who is important to everyone becomes a person who is unknown by everyone. Don't think there's not a transition that needs to take place in that life. Don't think that those people don't need people around them to speak into their lives. Or those years where maybe you are a VIP and someone says to you, you know, everybody's telling you it's all about you, it's not. God puts companions in our life to be able to help us along the way. And for many, it's a gift of a husband or a wife. For others, it's a gift of a deep friendship with a person or a group of people. Are you ready for the next season? Embrace the seasons of life. And then the last one is to embrace your role as protector or defender, it says in verse 12. Not to be fatalistic about hardship, it's just awful, but to step in and be there protecting each other and protecting others as well. To be there and say, I'm standing with you in the midst of this this assault on your life. And that's challenging to do. I, I remember early on in our marriage, Beth and I had a really, really hard first year of marriage. It was hard and we were pretty much alone in the midst of it. We were both in leadership and everybody thinks leaders are fine. And we weren't. And we really struggled with some things during that first year in particular. And Then there was another season of, of, of life that came and, and Beth began to notice that there were some things that she had dealt with as a young person in her life that were still pretty broken and she felt pretty wounded, and she said, I would just like to sit down with a person who can give me perspective in this. And she said, would you mind going with me to a counselor? And I thought, that's great. You know, it's kind of like, boy, would you please fix her for me? That's how I walked in, and then I realized that um, in our relationship, she had had a lot of hardship, And, and even in our married relationship, I wasn't a defender to her. I was... Instead, I was a judge. I grew up in the Christian family. I mean, I had it. I had this wonderful gift given to me, and and I pretty much thought I was Jesus. And that can be devastating when a person has that perspective. And you know what? I love my family, and I realize, you know, there's that passage in Genesis where it talks about, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother To to leave, to break those ties, and I had not broken them. And as a result, I was not protecting me, my wife, and me. See, there are all of these opportunities that we have to be a defender in the relationships around us, and God actually calls us into that, every one of us, to be a protector, and to recognize the needs and the challenges of the person in our life that's with us. Beth and I were on a camping trip uh, with my mom and my dad and my older sister and her husband, JR, and we were in Wisconsin, so we drove up to Door County, and we were going to go tenting. Now, camping in Beth's uh, life experience was you just pull the motor home up with the air conditioning, and you plug it in, and you watch color TV. And, uh, and, and I thought, you know, that's just crazy. Let me just show you what it's really supposed to be like. So we went up to Door County, and we got the tents out and pitched the tents, and it rained all weekend long. And, uh, you know, we're looking at each other, the Seversons are looking at each other, and we're saying, this is the greatest camping trip ever. You know, it's kind of like, look at who we are. We are a big deal. We think this is great. That's the way we grew up. You know, and, and there's Beth and Jody's husband, JR, and they have become this, this, uh, this uh, cohort of people who are complaining about Everything. And, and I, I just got increasingly fed up with my wife. And we had to go back early to be uh, back in, in Milwaukee on Sunday. And, and we're driving down the road, and we're three feet apart, but we were miles from each other. And it was just like why can't you be like my family? And as I was, I was self-righteously uh, judging uh, motorhomes, It just dawned on me, that was a miserable weekend. It rained, everything was wet, sleeping bags were wet, there were leaks in the tent, we sat under a tarp, and we tried to play games. It was horrible. And I realized, way, way, way too late, God, thanks for my wife, that can help me to see life differently than the paradigm I, I grew up in, the way the world is supposed to be. God gives us these people in our lives that actually enrich who we are if we choose to embrace the hard work, the grace, the seasons, and the call to be protectors. When Beth and I first got married, I was talking to a friend of mine, and I just pulled out the list of the reasons why I was just so grateful for Beth. You knew there were three or four things on the list and that she was really absolutely devoted to Jesus was on the list too because I grew up in a Christian home. I mean, that's going to be on the list, right? But it was just kind of down there because it was the obligatory thing. It was true. It was absolutely true. But I didn't know how important it was until our life together began. And I realized... Thank God for her devotion to him. We look at ourselves and we just shake our heads and we say, can you believe, can you believe we made it through all of that stuff? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. I just need to say this as we conclude. The most critical thing to do in your companionship with whoever it is that God has put in your life right now is to be connected to Jesus. Is to grow in your walk with Him. To depend on Him and to be nourished by Him. It's the most essential thing that you can do in the midst of a world that is filled with all sorts of challenges. There will be plenty of things to evaluate as far as a priority. Don't let that go. Don't let that go. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the richness of your word and for the challenges that come along with it and for the reminders that um, you go with us. And uh, we invite you as we worship you this week in a life characterized by surrender to you that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.